Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carbonell and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I welcome back Bob Elliott, co-founder, CEO, and CIO of Unlimited Funds to discuss his personal portfolio and approach to investing. Bob's approach is centered around building a diversified strategy that goes beyond the 60-40 stock bond portfolio. As he explains, he believes in building strategies for many different market regimes and environments. This includes having positions in trend-following strategies, what he calls diversified alpha, a big portion of risk parity, and a few other satellite positions to help with diversification. Bob takes a first principles approach to build an all-weather type of portfolio and derive returns from many different sources and assets. This is a good discussion with someone who has seen and developed top hedge fund strategies over time. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Bob Elliott of Unlimited Funds. Hi, Bob. Thanks again for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to it. So um, we're going to do a show around focusing in on your personal portfolio or I guess your investment game plan. And I think it's always good for us to sort of sit down with professionals like yourself, people that have experience in the markets and for our audience and also us to sort of learn about how you view and manage your personal portfolio. And I think the conversation today, you know, it's going to be closely aligned with what you guys do over there at Unlimited Funds in terms of um, running and building investment strategies. Um, And so I think this is going to be a a good discussion because it it goes, you know, far beyond the 60-40 stock bond portfolio that a lot of investors have and kind of gets into some other, I think, more diversifying sort of aspects of how one can look at building a portfolio. Um, But before we get into the specifics on that, we sort of like, like to start at sort of a high level, almost like a financial advisor would, and sort of ask you the question, like, what when you think about your portfolio and your investments and your goals, what would you say the long-term objectives are? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, and, and obviously, in some ways, the the key the key place to start when when I think about a savings portfolio, uh, an investment portfolio for for me and and my family, um, I, I'm really focused on how do I create uh, sort of durable long-term wealth creation. Um, and at the same time, not worry too much about it. Um, and those two things are uh, important to connect to each other because in a lot of ways, um, you know, being in the asset management business, uh, both, you know, originally being, you know, at, at, a, at a hedge fund and now running my own business means that I have, you know, significant, highly concentrated and somewhat volatile exposure to what happens in the financial markets and the success of uh, the products and the investment management that I'm doing. The last thing you want to be doing in that context is worrying too much about your accumulated savings over time. Savings for a person who has a volatile income should be boring, right? Which is different if you have a, a low volatility income that it makes sense maybe to spend more time and have more volatility on your savings. But for me, really focused on sort of that long-term wealth creation, low volatility, um, moderately good returns, and something I don't really need to worry about too much in the day-to-day. That worrying point is such a good example and an important one because, you know, a lot of times, particularly when there's stress in the markets and people are seeing the value of their portfolios go down, you know, it adds stress to families. People make bad decisions. Um, and s- sometimes, a lot of times, the worst decisions at the very worst time. So I love this idea of trying to construct a portfolio that you don't, that can grow, but you don't have to be overly worried about, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, there's, there's uh, I don't know if you read that work uh, by some academics who are suggesting that you should just be like long only stocks and that's it. And like, forget, you know, the... The 70% drawdowns be damned, just keep going. Just hold the stocks, hold it through. And the reality is that um, that people don't, you know, struggle to go through periods of extraordinary volatility like that. Even if, you know, the rational self would say, look, over a long period of time, probabilistically, you know, I'll generate higher returns if I experience much higher volatility. Um, the reality is, is not, you know, the thing that matters is not, 
what the perspective returns are of the strategy that you're pursuing. The question is, what are the returns of the strategy that you can stick with it over time? And so I think that's a really important component of it where, you know, I think for, for, the, for most savers, it's uh, trying to have a pretty good return with, uh, by li- and, and then limiting or moderating downside risks. And particularly if you have a volatile income, you don't want to be taking a lot of chances on your savings. The one thing you want to want to know is that the savings will basically be there when you want it to be there, uh, regardless of what exactly is going on in the financial markets. And this also, I think, ties in to some extent to this next question, which is about retirement, because I would think that in retirement, this type of strategy that we're sort of talking about here at a high level could be very appealing too for people that, you know, sort of are living off their uh, investments. But specifically for you, and this is kind of sort of might seem like an off the wall outside question, but we like to get at, you know, even for, for, for young people or professionals that still have a lot of time in their career, like, do you, how do you think about retirement? Do you think about it? Or is that so far out that you're just not, it's really not on the, something you think about or, or, or do you maybe think about it? I don't know. Where do you fall? Well, I, uh, I have to admit, I, I think the idea that I'm going to retire anytime soon or really at all uh, is uh, a low, low probability outcome. But, uh, uh, but you know, I think, uh, and I think part of that, I think you find this with people who have been in the financial markets and really enjoy it, that the, the passion and the, and the fun of the day-to-day in financial markets means you're always going to be part of it and engaged. Um, but I, I think the idea in terms of the savings in terms of building a savings portfolio for that retirement point is more about you don't know when retirement is going to happen. And the reality is you don't really know when any big life events can happen. I mean, you could guess that your kids are going to, you know, become 18 and then go to college and you'll have to pay for it. But what you can't predict necessarily is the macroeconomic environment that will exist at that point and where exactly your portfolio will be at that point. And so that's why the really key focus is, uh, trying to create the most consistent upward sloping return uh, over time and limiting the drawdowns because the worst thing that you can have, let's just say, is you're turning from you know working to retirement or you're turning from not having to pay to co- college to pay the college is a circumstance where you just experience a large drawdown and then you have a large you know capital allocation that you have to start uh, giving and that just sets you back uh, at that point in time and so I think that's that's kind of you know, uh, again, sort of going back to that, like, why does volatility really matter? Why does intra-experience volatility matter? It's because you don't know when you need the money and when you're not going to need the money. And given that uncertainty, um, you know, consistency matters a lot more than end return. I love, by the way, the word, the fact that you're using the word savings, because it just makes you, you know, when you talk about a savings portfolio versus an investing portfolio, you think about it differently. You think about like, I want to protect my savings. I don't want to lose the money. So I, I like that reframing in terms of how people think of their portfolios. Yeah, if you're gonna, if you're gonna, I think all of us who are in the investment management business um, spend some time in our personal accounts trading markets. And if you're gonna do that, that's fine. But just that, that sort of allocation and that trading, that is not savings. That is speculation, that is trading. That is not the core savings that you're going to to put away that you're, you know, by and large not touching uh, unless you have these sort of meaningful life events. And separating those two things are is super valuable. I mean, literally at the level of separating the accounts and making it clear that, you know, certain accounts are savings accounts and you're not, you know, engaged with them in a certain way. And if you're, you know, trading them for your own personal interest, then just have an account that's dedicated to that and sized in a way that, you know, if you lost it all, not not that you should try to lose it all, but if you lost it all, it wouldn't be uh, a big problem for your long-term savings position. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Like a lot of financial advisors will even advocate that. Like, you know, take 2% or 5% of your money or something, put it off to the side and do whatever you want with it. Have fun, have a great time, but like, don't don't come asking for more money if you blow it. Like put the, put your That's core right. stuff, you know, in something that you can stick with over the long term that has, that has the potential to produce a good return for you. Yeah, and it's and it's almost you know it's almost better to just to have the two the two sets of of, of accounts in totally different platforms. For instance, you know maybe you have a financial advisor that you're working with for your long term savings portfolio, and then if you're going to have a speculative portfolio, 
you know, you can have it on interactive brokers or in a E-Trade account or et cetera, et cetera. So something that is just totally separate where, um, you know, part of the idea, uh, you know, of, of working with a financial advisor is not just to help you, you know, help guide you through all of the various things that you have to do in order to, you know, manage your money smartly and be tax efficient and all those things. There's also like a benefit of the friction. By creating friction, it means that you're not actually actively trading the account, right? You're saving in the account. And so I, I actually find that that check to be a useful accountability mechanism to say, no, you can't just go do whatever you want to do with your long-term savings account. You have to sit there and have a check on your behavior, frankly, to limit or slow the amount of times that you're engaging with that. Because you know, the best the best managed portfolios on the savings side are ones where you have a clear game plan that you can stick to and one in which you actually stick to that game plan and don't, you know, don't divert from it meaningfully given the flavor of the day or the macroeconomic environment. It's funny that the type of strategy we're going to talk about today is something that for 40 years, basically nobody was talking about because we got very lucky and we had a period where stocks and bonds were just working. And when stocks and bonds are working and people are invested in stocks and bonds, they don't really want to talk about this stuff. But I'm just before we get into actually what you do, I'm wondering if you just talk about the 60-40 in general and maybe some of the flaws you see in that type of approach. Well, I mean, the 60-40 um, in, in a lot of ways is just a, a lesson in uh, behavioral response to experience conditions. Um, we've experienced 40 years of disinflationary growth in the U.S. economy and really across the developed world and, um, and an environment of you know, global peace and integration. Uh, and the outcome of that has been that the two assets that do the best in good growth and lower and falling, low and falling inflation, which are stocks and bonds, have done the best and make up the core portfolio that most investors are holding at any point in time. And so, you know, the 60-40 portfolio is, there's nothing magic about the 60-40 portfolio. It's in a lot of ways just the optimized portfolio for the recent experience. And when I say recent, I mean like the last 40 years kind of experience. And one that, you know, everyone feels comfortable with given their experience. But just because we just we went through a period of 40 years of, you know, falling inflation, low and stable inflation, and pretty good growth, um, combined, you know, extended by a period of extraordinary monetary stimulation doesn't necessarily mean that the next 40 years are going to look anything like that. And so I think that's part of the, the challenge is how do you create a game plan that can prepare yourself for any macroeconomic environment, not just a macroeconomic environment where, you know, growth is good and, and inflation is falling. I'm just curious, if we look at that idea of low inflation and growth, and, and we went back a lot further than the last 40 years, like what percentage of the time does that exist in history if we look at a much larger period? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, a, a, a simple example is, you know, you get, um, you, know, you get significant inflation and deflation volatility, something like 25 or 30% of the time. When I say significant, I mean like above 10% and below 0% um, across the developed world. If you look across the developed world, across the last 100 years, for all the major developed world economies, it happens about 35% of the time, right? That you have either extreme inflation or extreme deflation. I, I think most people would be surprised that that was the case, right? And and those are pretty extreme scenarios. Above 10 and below zero are pretty extreme scenarios. And ones in which the 60-40 portfolio in particular performs terribly in those sorts of environments. And so basically people have gone all in on one set of conditions that exists, you know, with reasonable frequency, uh, you know, something like, I don't know, maybe half the time, uh, that's that's a pretty good uh, a pretty good portfolio given the macroeconomic conditions, and have totally forgotten about the fact that you know inflation can be way too high or way too low. Growth can be in you know in a terrible state for an extended period of time, um, and that's when sixty forty doesn't work. So part of the idea here is to say we've gotten lucky um, and recognize that we've gotten lucky, and start to think about a wider range of different outcomes than just uh, the ones in the last you know, couple of decades. Before we talk about the details of the portfolio, I wanted to ask you about Bridgewater because 
you had the opportunity to work there and you know they're very well known for a very thoughtful process in terms of how they construct portfolios and i was wondering what are the biggest takeaways you took from that in terms of how you think about building your personal portfolio well i think probably the biggest takeaway from that is um is have the humility to have diversification and that is that's a story um that exists whether you're building a savings portfolio, whether you're building an alpha portfolio, um, whatever portfolio you're making, um, if you've been in this business long enough, you will be painfully wrong with some reasonable frequency. And and the, the ability to succeed rather than fail, um, both in terms of building your savings and wealth, but also in terms of being a great investor over time, is continuing to play the game. And so a lot of times it can feel like you're paying a price. Diversification feels like you're paying a price because there's always a thing that's going up a lot. I mean, how many people like literally today are like looking at that Bitcoin, you know, parabolic move and are like, God, I wish I put 100% of my portfolio into Bitcoin. But, but like that, but maybe Bitcoin succeeds and maybe Bitcoin fails. Maybe goes up, maybe goes down. Um, the point is that you want to be in a position where whether you're right or you're wrong, you're still here to play the game and you're still here to build your savings. And so that's really what um, I think is at, at the core. I mean, a lot of the stuff that we did at Bridgewater, particularly in the alpha portfolio, was recognizing having that humility about the accuracy of uh, any alpha strategy and building portfolios effectively relying on diversification in order to build more consistent returns. And the same thing is true with anyone's savings portfolio. We've looked at a lot of portfolios in the podcast that go beyond the 60-40, but yours is very unique in terms of the, the four different buckets and the way you look at those four different buckets. We'll put the pie chart in the video so everybody can see it, but can you just talk about what those four buckets are and why they're important? Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you think about uh, a portfolio, when you think about a, a, a savings portfolio, um, the goal of a savings portfolio, as I said, is to build long-term wealth. And one of the key things to think about when you're building long-term wealth is you want to, you care much more about real wealth than you do about uh, nominal wealth, right? So inflation, the, the biggest risk to any investor is an inflationary environment. And the reason why that is, particularly any 60-40 investor, and the reason why that is, is it's a period of time where your long-term costs are going up and where those assets that perform uh, poorly in a higher inflationary environment are typically the assets that you're overweight to. And so that's really the idea here is to say, how do we create a long-term strategic portfolio that in particular has the humility to recognize there might be a wide range of different macroeconomic environments? And then on top of it is recognizing that uh, inflation is the biggest risk to any long-term saver. And so the portfolio that we've built, which I, which I call the simple game plan portfolio, basically has four core assets. You could actually run this portfolio with five ETFs. It's the basic idea um, uh, over time, which is uh, you put about half of your capital into a risk parity portfolio, which is uh, a balanced beta portfolio, uh, which basically is a portfolio that um, is balanced, invests strategically or passively in a diverse set of, of assets like stocks and bonds and commodities and gold and balances that allocation based upon whether or not, um, you know, based upon the macroeconomic environment. So you're not particularly exposed to one macroeconomic environment versus another. So if inflation is high or low or growth is strong or weak, you're balanced to all those different outcomes. And then on top of it, take that portfolio the trouble with that portfolio is it's a nominal portfolio. The balance is nominal. And so what you want to do to protect that portfolio is you want to add in, you want to be overweight assets that do well in higher inflationary environments. And so that means overweight gold and overweight diversified commodities in order to protect yourself in a higher inflation environment. The other two pieces are intended to, which are diversified alpha and trend following, are intended to add agility to the portfolio to navigate through different transition environments. And both of those strategies, you know, trend following has a long history of providing a diversifying 
uh, a diversifying return stream relative to strategic investing. And what I call diversified alpha, which is to find high quality managers at reasonable costs who have a consistent track record of adding additional return uh, that is diversifying to your overall portfolio. So you take those four, those four building blocks, risk parity, inflation tilts, trend following, and diversified alpha, and you put that together. And the basic idea is returns that are similar to what you'd get in the 60-40, which is your baseline, but ones that have about half the monthly volatility and meaningfully lower drawdowns. How do you think about risk parity? I just know when, when you look at the risk parity strategies out there, there's a lot of them. You know, there's people who say, you know, you just need these core assets and that that's more than enough to get capture, you know, the returns of risk parity. Then there's people who hold all kinds of crazy things. Like, how do you think about that? I mean, as an investor is evaluating like different risk parity strategies, what are the principles you would use? Well, I, I think uh, at one level, it doesn't matter that much. Uh, and the, the thing that matters the most is that you just have a diverse, you know, exposure to a diverse set of, of assets. And, and when I say that, I, I emphasize, uh, and in particular, looking at that portfolio allocation on a risk basis rather than on a capital basis. So if you take the typical 60-40 investor, they hold you know, the S&P 500 and let's say the global ag or, or US ag uh, uh, bond index. Well, you know, stocks have a lot more volatility than, than the bond ag. And, and as a result, essentially, you know, that the portfolio, the typical 60-40 portfolio is like 98% correlated to the stock market. So like, who cares? You're not getting anything out of your bonds, right? That's the problem with capital allocating is because the bonds just don't matter in the context of the overall portfolio. So really at the core of a, of a risk parity portfolio is to say, instead of allocating based upon capital, allocate based upon risk. Uh, and you can do that in a bunch of different ways. Frankly, you could just take, you know, the four main asset classes, which is, you know, stocks, bonds, commodities, and gold, and just allocate them equally on a risk basis. And you basically have what you're looking for. Right? I mean, it, so, it, you know, so you could balance your economic exposures. You could not balance your economic exposures. You could just balance your asset exposures. And it's mostly fine. The key thing is to just get away from the all-stock portfolio or the all-stock and bond portfolio and build that diverse asset. Just in terms of um, like implementation here, um, I'm going to kind of step out of the holdings for a minute. And just in terms of like rebalancing, like the commodity sleeve is like interesting. Obviously, that's going to be very helpful during times of inflation. But, you know, commodities can go through long periods of either good, really good performance or really bad performance. And just how do you think about like rebalancing and getting back to those like those target weights in the context of you know, having these types of assets in the portfolio. Yeah, I, I think um, uh, it the, the best the best thing you want to do when you to build a long term savings portfolio is to build a portfolio that you trade once a year. You just rebalance once a year, and you don't have to worry about it other than that. And I think um, you know you get queued on do you rebalance monthly or weekly or daily and all those things. And the frank reality is. I mean, first of all, there's operational issues related to that in terms of taking on, uh, you know, costs associated, you know, tax consequences and things like that with more frequent rebalancing. Um, but there's also just the the hassle, the hassle factor. And what we talked about is building a long-term savings portfolio that you do not think about right, in your day-to-day. So what that means is building something that, you know, basically is a once-a-year rebalancing portfolio. And the frank reality is if you rebalance once a year, it's close enough, right? It, it, it really does not matter that much over a 30 or 40 year time frame. It doesn't make any difference. So on the, in terms of what's underneath the hood of the different asset classes, like how do you think about that in terms of you're talking about not wanting to pay attention to it that much. So do you just buy like index mostly stuff on the equity side or, you know, how, how do you think about that idea? Like are you factors or, or what are, what's underneath on the equity side? Uh, well, I mean, on the equity side, uh, just index futures is fine. Okay. Um, and that's, I mean, the reality is uh, for risperity, I mean, my my recommendation, um, which uh, which I, I get no commission for, would be to just buy our part of ETF. It's fine. It's close enough. Um, uh, it, it's, you know, it, it's basically, you know, the treasury bond 
futures and stock futures and you know cash tips and other assets, you know gold futures. It's it's just a you know it's just a simple simple construction of the traditional risk parity uh, portfolio, um, just done in an ETF wrapper, which is you know a lot more efficient for taxable investors to to hold and execute on. So that's what I would do. But you could spend a lot of time trying to pick out stock factors and you know, slices and big versus small, international versus domestic and all sorts of different things. And over a 40 year time frame, it doesn't matter. Like matters a lot more that you're balanced and that you behave consistently with it than it does whether you're getting into the details of, you know, these factors or those factors. Can you also dig a little bit more into the diversified alpha thing? You know, one of the things people always say about alpha is it's very hard to find and people who have it, you know, lose it over time. So how do you think about like finding consistent sources of alpha that'll persist? Well, I think probably in this um, in this portfolio, that's probably the most challenging piece of things is to how how do you find consistent uh, alpha? And to be clear, at a reasonable cost, right? A consistent net of fees alpha, because there's a lot of good managers out there that generate very good um, very good alpha. And then basically just take all the alpha away for themselves and fees and leave investors not that much better off uh, than they would be on their own. And so identifying good alphas means going through and looking for managers that offer a good, consistent alpha at a low cost. So, you know, you should be looking for managers that have a fee structure where maybe they're taking 20% of the alpha that they're generating and where... Um, where the alpha that they're generating is, you know, is uh, is meaningful relative to, you know, just a, a plain index fund. So, you, you know, you're not going to spend much time, you know, looking for, um, you know, lo- looking for little pieces of uh, of alpha or basis points of alpha. You want something that's that's meaningful. And so, I mean, the good thing is there's been a real prol- proliferation of ETF structures uh, and 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 better and better alphas in uh, in the ETF context that you can go out and you can invest in. I mean, part of why I started Unlimited was that was seeing that there was a real gap in the quality of the alphas that were available for the everyday investor uh, to, to access them at a low cost. Um, but, you know, leaving anything that I'm doing in my day job aside, there's there's lots of great managers that now are operating in that ETF wrapper that you can go out and uh, and and find and include in your portfolio. The key thing is just not get overweight on one particular manager, one particular style, one particular strategy. Again, it's, it's all about the diversification. Just in the same way you want to diversify your passive portfolio, your betas, you also want to diversify your alphas because you know some alphas do well in certain environments and other alphas do well in other environments. And so creating that balance is, is really the key, You know, not getting overweight on any particular strategy or manager. Yeah, and to your point, like if you were trying to build this portfolio 10 years ago, it would have been much harder. Um, you know, there's so many great things that have been done, like what you're doing, what other people are doing in the ETF space to allow these types of things to be available to your average investor. Yeah, yeah, and I think there's, you know, uh, you can go out and you can, you know, we, again, leaving aside what we're doing, like there's, you know, probably two dozen ETF-based alpha strategies that have existed for more than five years that you can go out and, you know, you can go out and find and invest in today if you want to understand the return properties. And people that have nothing to do with me, that if you look at, you know, how much alpha they're generating relative to their fees, it's a good deal. If you look at their absolute alpha creation, it's a good deal for you to include in your in your portfolio, presuming that they are able to continue to have that alpha persist over time, which, you know, the last five years is a good test case because, uh, We've been through pretty much anything you could you could imagine in the last five years. So if you're going to do a stress test on a manager, you know this is the time. <laughs> this has been the time the last five years. How do you? I want to ask you about behavior because this is probably not an issue for you because you're not sitting here judging yourself against the sixty forty portfolio. You're not looking at your returns and graphing them. You know you know the reason you're doing what you're doing, and you understand that some of the assets will be a drag during a period where the sixty forty is doing really well. But how do you think that, about that from the perspective of the average investor? Because that, that's something, you know, we talked earlier about how they, they panic when their portfolio goes down. The other time they panic is when they're at the cocktail party, you know, and their friends are all running with their stocks and bonds. 
and they're not. So I'm just wondering if you have any tips or any ideas around that about how to stick with this type of portfolio and how to think about it like properly benchmarked. Yeah, it's a, it's a good good point. I, I can uh, confidently state and, and wrote something about this at the end of last year that this simple game plan portfolio has underperformed stocks uh, over the last uh, 18 months. Uh, and that's okay. Uh, um, you know, that that's okay. Stocks uh, got lucky. Uh, and, you know, you're building a portfolio that's not based upon getting lucky in terms of your picks. You're building a portfolio that you don't have to worry about, right? That's what you're trying to do. You don't have to worry about it. And so, uh, you know, those people who uh, were cheering how well stocks have done in the last 18 months were also uh, very concerned, you know, just 18 months ago when stocks were at a 25% drawdown. Uh, when you think about this portfolio, and particularly benchmarking, I, I think for, particularly for advisors, you know, peer risk is a real thing. And, and I think it, we'd be silly as issuers to fail to recognize that. Um, if you're sitting in an advisor seat and concerned about how much you're tracking relative to the 60-40, one of the things you can do is start to think about how can you tilt your portfolio to get in this direction, or your client's portfolios to get in this direction, but also keeping enough tracking close to 60-40 that you don't create that pure risk. So if, just a simple example. If you just took 60-40 and then you took 10% out of it and allocated to gold and 10% out of it and allocated to diversified commodities and 10% and allocated it to, let's say, diversified alpha, you get a portfolio outcome that's still like 90% correlated to 60-40, but has meaningfully improved, something like 50% improved uh, return relative to risk over time. And so that could be a balance. That could be the right answer if you're benchmarking to 60-40 is benchmark there and don't go all the way to a risk parity portfolio and, you know, 20% managed futures and all this, this uh, you know, the, the sort of radical portfolio, simple game plan portfolio that I'm proposing here. But move in that direction. Use the lessons that this type of, uh, of allocation shows to incrementally improve your client's portfolio while not introducing too much business risk. Can you talk a little bit more about what you, how you think about the trend following bucket, like what goes on under the hood there? Yeah, I mean, for this uh, for this work that I did here, the trend following is a very slow moving. It's a just a twelve month change trend following strategy, and you would be surprised at how good slow trend following is in terms of generating uh, alpha over time, and in particular, generating a return stream that can often be complementary to your beta portfolio, particularly in times of challenging beta environments. You know, when stocks are going down or when bonds are going down. And so um, I, I think it's a sort of uh, approach which you can either do on your own, which, um, which you know, is you could create your own, you know, 12-month change in, in prices and, and trend follow and adjust the portfolio yourself. But the frank reality is there's a bunch of good managers that are out there that are doing this in the ETF structure these days that um, you can just go buy, you know, one or a handful there's lots of great, uh, particularly in the managed futures world, lots of great replicators that are out there um, that can give you this exposure and do, which allows allows you to basically run a multiple asset strategy all within an ETF wrapper so that you don't have to, to take the capital gains and losses that you would take if you were managing on yourself. And all you see is you see the ETF allocation. And under the hood, you're getting that trend following diversification. So lots of great stuff that's out there. I mean, there's been a proliferation of these products is probably a, a dozen or so that are out there that are all, you know, pretty good um, in terms of, of giving you access to this exposure. Yeah, a couple of things with that. One is that that point is really, really important about trend following because it is so much better done within an ETF. You know, if you're sitting there holding individual positions and you're selling them and buying them and selling them, it's horrible from a tax perspective. And it's, it's very hard to generate any kind of return, even if you have some complicated strategy that you think is going to do better, that would do better than just doing it in a simple way in an ETF because of the tax consequences. Yeah, and, and, you know, those, particularly those replicators, you know, it's it's pretty good. You know, uh, if you think about uh, a replication that's maybe 80 or 90% as good as sort of the the real thing, if you were to, you know, invest in, let's say, a, a portfolio of managed futures managers directly, you know, 80 or 90% when you're paying much lower taxes 
and uh, and much lower fees. You, know, you take that eighty or ninety percent good all day long because uh, what you care about is not you know the perfection of the gross of fees, gross of taxes return. What you care about as an individual is the net of fees, net of taxes outcome. That's what you care about, uh, and not having to worry too much about it, right? Like leave the trend following management to the professionals who do this all day long and just hold, you know, one or maybe you could hold a handful of these strategies that are out there to get that exposure and just stop thinking about it. <laughs> Don't worry too much about it, right? This is, it's uh, it's low stress, you know, highly diversified with low stress. That's the goal here. <laughs> yeah. The other thing you said that definitely rang true with me is this idea of simplicity. Because I've been the guy in my career that's like, oh, I'll build a 27-factor strategy here to accomplish this. And then when you're done, you realize, oh, the two-factor strategy probably did right. basically got 99% of the same place without all the hassle of it. So I, I think that's a big lesson in general, whether it be trend following or factor investing or a lot of the places, is sometimes the simplest approach actually works just as well as the crazy complicated one you try to make. Yeah, and often the simpler approach is, is not only sort of on a backward-looking basis uh, as effective, um, and on a forward-looking basis, easier to implement. But it's also often more robust because it's not reliant on one particular set of outcomes that creates, you know, factors number 10 through 27 working well, right? So it's so part of what you care about, you don't, you don't, you don't care so much about how good does it test in the in the back history. What you really care about is how robust it'll be in the future. And I think going back to that sort of humility point um, that we talked about at the outset, like having humility to say that uh, complexity does not lead to, does, it's not necessarily related to how durable the strategy is, is an important lesson in humility um, you, you know, come, that comes from humility, which is to say, maybe my optimizations just aren't that valuable and aren't that true, even though when I look, when I look in the back history, they look you know, truer than they probably really are. I want to ask you briefly about international exposure, because that, that's a big debate you see out there right now is we've had this period where the U.S. has just killed international markets for a really, really long period of time. And, and some people think it's similar to the 60-40, where it's, it's happened for a long period of time, but it's going to reverse at some point. And I'm just wondering, how do you think at like a high level about international exposure, like in the importance of having it in a portfolio? Yeah, well, I, I think for um, it sort of goes back to like, you know, do you have any edge in figuring this out? And I think the answer is, you know, most people don't have any edge in terms of fi figuring it out. And so um, more diversification is better than less diversification. Um, and just because the U.S. has outperformed over the course of the last uh, 10 years uh, or 15 years doesn't mean that it will outperform in the future. I've, I've been in this business long enough to remember when people thought the U.S., you know, equity market was dead and we should just only invest in emerging markets because that's where all the alpha is. Or, you know, you should only invest in small caps because that's where the where, where the incremental alpha is and never invest in large caps. Like things that, you know, sort of are taken for granted today as being sort of truth that U.S. mega caps are the, you know, are clearly the, are obviously the best companies in the world. You know, it wasn't that long ago when, that's the, the exact opposite of that was was what everyone thought was obvious. And so if you're building a portfolio that is meant to be, you know, simple, that you're building over a 40 or 50 year time frame, a savings portfolio, what you want to do is you just want to build a diverse set of exposures. And so that would mean, you know, holding a basket of both U.S. securities as well as international stocks as part of that portfolio. I'm just curious, as, as before I hand it back to Justin, outside of your public portfolio, is there anything else major you do, like, you know, whether it be venture capital, private equity, real estate? Is there anything like that you do outside of your public portfolio? Uh, not really. Uh, <laughs> and, I'll and I'll tell you why that is, um, is because, you know, the vast majority of private market exposures um, are not worth the cost uh, and the illiquidity. Um, and the reason why that is, is that, um, you know, most of those exposures can be accessed through, you can get the same type of exposure in a public market structure at much lower cost than you can, you know, in those private market structures. Like, you know, if you were to take over the last 20 years, the Russell 2K value and lever it 1.75 times, like you'd have one of the best private equity firms in the world, 
right? Assuming that you match in the accounting. Um, you know, the fees of that would be essentially zero rather than six or 800 basis points. Like when you start to go into things that are illiquid and charge, you know, five, six, seven, 800 basis points of fees, like you have to believe that those managers have magic in order to believe that those investments are worth it. And here's the, the dark reality is those managers don't have magic. Right? They're, no, they're, they're constrained by the same constraints that exist in the public markets. And so if you want to talk about something that's going to be easy to deal with and also help deal with that question of you don't know the day in which you need your savings, constraining yourself or keeping yourself in the public markets is really the way to go. You had mentioned um, Bitcoin earlier, and I think it crossed 60,000 or something like that. It's on a pretty crazy run recently, but... Do you dabble at all in any crypto or are you kind of shy away from that stuff? Yeah, I, I don't hold any uh, cryptocurrency in, in, my, uh, in my portfolio. I, I think when you think about where it fits, you know, I think there are reasonable arguments that could be made that it is a, um, that it is a money alternative uh, in the same way gold can be viewed as a money alternative. Um, I, you know, it's not convincing enough yet to me that it deserves a role in the portfolio like that. But, you know, is it possible? It's, it's certainly possible. Um, and, you know, maybe it deserves a, a, a small slice given, you know, the magnitude of the adoption that has existed. But it's certainly not something that would um, would likely be a meaningful component of a portfolio anytime soon, in part because its volatility is so extreme. So on a cash basis, so as not to take on too much risk, you know, you'd be talking about tenths of basis points of allocation to uh, to, to cryptocurrency or Bitcoin um, in order to keep the same sort of balance in the portfolio. So the question is basically, is it worth the hassle uh, given, um, you know, given the size that it's going to have in your portfolio? You know, now that there's Bitcoin ETFs, you know, you could you could see that it's it might be just easier and more sensible to to include it in that in that um Contra currency bucket, but you know it's pretty on the margin. It's just interesting side note. We we custody and trade our client assets at Goldman Sachs. It used to be Folio FM, but now it's Goldman Sachs Asset uh, Custody Solutions. And and for my personal accounts, I just was curious. I was kind of looking at some of these Bitcoin ETFs, and um, you know, I went and tried to see if they were on the, the platform. And like, not all platforms. So none of those ETFs are yet on the Goldman platform. And I don't know if they're going to be. I emailed in the customer service and I was like, are these going to be? And they're like, I don't know what they said. There's like no, you know, there's no plans to add these. So it's like, just because they're out there doesn't mean that they're even really available on all platforms. Yeah, that, that that's true. And um, uh, certain uh, certain platform providers may be more or less antagonistic uh, to Bitcoin in the specific. I know there's tales of Vanguard being very proactive in excluding the Bitcoin products, the Bitcoin ETF products into the market. Look, the, th the main thing I would emphasize is um, the construction or the issuance of Bitcoin ETFs is, is great for the individual investor because it brings regulatory oversight and the protections that exist in the ETF space to the everyday investor. And it brings down the costs of accessing those exposures by, you know, you know they're now like a tenth of what they were before or even cheaper. And that's great for the customer. Great for the customer. Doesn't necessarily mean it's the right asset to meaningfully include in your portfolio. But if we're if we're thinking about you know what are the sort of innovations, particularly the ETF innovations, you know, I'm an ETF uh, guy. Like this is a great example of how the ETF world can create something that is just strictly meaningfully better for the everyday investor. So maybe they get widespread adoption, maybe they don't. But at least there's an option out there that's just so much better. So much better for the everyday investor than existed, you know, just uh, a few short months ago. Not to bring us down this crypto rabbit hole because this is not where we. But I, I, what you just said is very interesting because, you know, Coinbase, while they're a beneficiary on the custodian side with all these ETFs, and I don't know the economics behind it, but to your point, you know, it's very expensive to trade in and out of these cryptocurrencies at Coinbase. If the, you within the ETFs, if you're paying like, I don't know what the fees are, I mean, but they're gotta be pretty 
low. Some are as low as 20 basis points. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. There, so just there are some, you know, uh, uh, early issuances that are essentially zero, right? But but let's call it, you know, the, the going rate, the market on this is going to be, I think, 20 or 25 basis points, which, um, you know, puts it as more expensive than stock indices. You know, I mean, Vanguard is at three basis points or four for stock and bond indices. Mm-hmm. And the, the products have more complexity in terms of the custodying of the of the coins. But, you know, 20 basis points, as a simple example, is a whole heck of a lot cheaper than 200 basis points, which is what people were paying grayscale uh, before these ETFs got issued. And so that's, you know, that that's strictly good for the consumer. There's no question about that. How do you view um, home, home ownership in the context of your overall net worth and personal portfolio? Home ownership, you know, I, I think you got to live in a place and it's not a savings asset. It's a consumption asset. And so, you know, you live in a you live in a home and you should be prepared for it to go up or down. Um, and since you have to continuously live in a home, um, uh, you know, if it goes up in value, then if you the home you're in, in terms of what you own, goes up in value, then every other home goes up in value and housing costs go up. And if it goes down, then housing costs go down. And there's no like grand arbitrage. You know, you could say maybe between flipping between, you could flip between renting and buying and renting and buying based upon the relative costs of those. But like functionally that is, you know, in the spirit of trying to like not, spent too much time thinking <laughs> about uh, the, you know, uh, hassling yourself with uh, with things you can't control, like trading houses is not, you know, is a very high cost, uh, high transaction cost strategy and uh, isn't going to do much for you. So, you know, I think about it like with a house and that's where I live and I don't think too much about it, too yeah, much more about it. The, the one point that I sort of that I've been thinking about in the last like year or so is, you know, like when I bought and then refied, I don't know, like I have like a 3% mortgage or something like that. And, you know, where rates are today, it's like the idea of buying a home or, you know, uh, moving and having like the mortgage basically double effectively from what I'm paying now. It's just, I think, to the point on rates and the 60-40 and we were in this like declining interest rate environment and obviously rates got like super, you know, historically low and a lot of people took advantage of that. But I, I don't, you know, I think that it's it's sort of a, a challenging time, I guess, to be thinking about like moving or buying a new home or anything like that. Well, I, I think part of that um, is uh, if you, uh, it's a question of whether you you borrow or buy on leverage uh, uh, for for a home, and I think you know that's a you know, traditionally it has been a wealth creation device, a middle class wealth creation device by borrowing money and buying a house that is larger than you could otherwise you know afford if you were paying cash. It's not clear that um, that adding that leverage is necessarily uh, what you want to do in order to create long-term wealth and and more often than not leads to buying houses that are too big relative to what you can afford. And so I think, you know, in a lot of ways, most savers would be better off buying a house that is considerably smaller than what they could quote unquote afford um, and uh, and paying cash for it than dealing, you know, than, than, uh, and not having the hassle of having to worry about whether or not you know, what's your mortgage and is it low and is it not low and do I want to move, mm. do I not want to move as a result of that? Like way better off just, you know, frankly living within your means rather than um, borrowing to be above it. But look, you know, in the in the context of all of this, you know, I, I, um, I'm i operating a lot more conservatively than, you know, how, how many people operate. How do you think about... Um kids and money. Um, I, I have two young girls. Jack has young children. You have, I don't, do you have multiple children or just one? Okay. Yep. So, and you know, we, we ask this question and a lot of times we get just very different answers. So when you think about your kids and your legacy and leaving them something or nothing, how do you kind of think about that? Well, I think, um, long-term what, uh, what builds, um, 
you know, uh, long-term life satisfaction is to ensure that people are uh, have a profession or trade or something that um, that you know they're working for over time, and um, and so you know what that means is, and I should say that, and to ensure that you know the basics are are met. Um, and those two things often are in contrast to each other, which is that, you know, pushing oneself often will not happen if it feels like the the day-to-day needs are basically largely going to be met. And so um, I think it is a, uh, it's a challenge um, to balance those things appropriately. Uh, but I think it's a challenge where too often uh, parents are tilting towards giving too much rather than pushing uh, for, uh, for, for their children to, to uh, create, drive their own success. And, and that um, structurally leads them to actually, over the long term, lead less fulfilling lives rather than more fulfilling lives, um, even though in the moment it might feel like it's better uh, for them. And so in that context, you know, I think operating in a way that says, you know, it, it's up to you uh, to create the life you want to create uh, predominantly. And, you know, obviously in a worst case uh, situation or an emergency or in a crisis, you know, that as a parent, you would you would deal with that. But by and large, focusing on ensuring that um, that, uh, you know, they have the uh, challenge and the fulfillment of building an independent life away from from parents. It's, it's interesting. We've had some famous investors on the podcast who, you know, had the, had the kind of means to set up trust for their kids. And, you know, when we asked this question, their reaction was, you know, if I had to do it again, I probably wouldn't. Um, you know, so it, it is interesting to think about. Like, it, it's such an interesting balance. Like you want people to be able to pursue, you want your children to be able to pursue what they want to pursue in life, even if that might not be something that has, you know, significant financial rewards associated with it. But by the same token, like you said, if, if you don't, if you don't have to get up yourself and support yourself and build something yourself, it, the motivation may not be there. Um, so it's an interesting balance and there's no answer to this probably, you know, no matter how you look at it, you know, people just try to figure out where, where they are in the spectrum, but there's really no correct answer to this. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the key thing is uh, there's always that um, challenge of the immediate relative to the long term, because the thing that's going to matter, you know, when uh, your child is at 60 or 70 or 80 is going to be how the 50 years went, not how the five years went you know, the most recent five years went. And so the question is, how do you set them up most for success from that perspective? And that's where creating self-reliance is a much better long-term attribute than any short-term support. Just a couple more as we wrap up here. I always like to ask a question at the end to get this, this idea that your portfolio is not all about money. So I have a sailboat, a racing sailboat. I live in like lower Connecticut. Um, and, and a racing sailboat is not a good investment from a financial perspective. Like if you did the spreadsheet on it, it wouldn't be pretty. Um, but by the same token, I get, I get a lot of you know, benefits from it. I, I can go on a Wednesday nights with my friends and have a beer and I get a lot of joy from it. So it's something I've invested in that's not a great financial investment, but it's been great in my life. And I'm just wondering if there's anything like that that you have in your life that may not be the greatest financial investment, but you get a lot of joy out of. Uh, yeah, for sure. I, I my a big hobby of mine is gardening, and um, I once uh, I, I once read this book. Uh, it was called the sixty four dollar tomato, which is uh, you know a guy basically took all the all in costs. This, this person who was lived on a sort of hobby farm in in um, in, in Hudson Valley. He said he took the all in costs, cost of land and the financing and the you know his time and all that stuff, and he worked it out to figure out that you know a single tomato would cost sixty four dollars. Which is obviously a horrific uh, uh, economic investment. Why you would spend your time creating your sixty-four dollars a minute, uh, and so that's—I I feel like gardening is the same way for me. Like if you just took the amount of time and money and effort that I spend in uh, in gardening every summer, um, it would certainly add up to a pretty bad return. Uh, but uh, it's it's a great hobby, and you know it. it um, I enjoy it a lot, and you know there's there's nothing like. Uh, growing something and then enjoying it at the dinner table. So, uh, so while it's 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 a lot like your sailboat, uh, a waste of money and time for sure. Um, you get a lot of pleasure out of it. What do you grow? 
well, my my key uh, attribute for growing things is something that tastes uh, totally different and much better growing out of the garden than uh, than out of the supermarket. And so, it, it's an odd collection of things. Uh, tomatoes are obvious, um, but also things like potatoes, which you wouldn't realize are to- are are radically different, homegrown rather than out of uh, out of the um, grocery store. And then uh, for a long time, even as a little kid, uh, I've always enjoyed growing pumpkins. So that's, oh, that's, uh, very cool. that's another thing. I grow a lot of pumpkins, uh, which are, uh, which are all, pumpkins are, they're a very fickle um, uh, crop to grow where, you know, some years, like last year, just incredible abundance, uh, more pumpkins than I've grown in a decade. And then other years where the pumpkins tell you that this is not the year. So you know that's that's the beautiful thing. Talk about humility in in markets and investing. There's nothing more uh, reinforcing of humility than gardening, uh, where Mother Nature is uh, <laughs> teaches you humility over and over and over again. I wonder what's the big differentiator between the stuff that's like has the biggest difference between the supermarket and growing it. Is it like the preservatives they use on it, or is there like a factor to that, or is it just kind of a random thing? Well, when it uh, the time and distance between when it's picked and when it's on your table is a big part of it, particularly around you know uh, how the the composition of the you know anyway the composition of of the fruit so to speak is very different. Um, so like you know you have starch decay and sugar decay in potatoes as they are, get stored or tomatoes. Interestingly enough, if you look at like the the composition of a tomato in terms of like its scent and its taste and things like that. Um, it comes from the fact that it's not like a riper tomato is just more flavor than a less ripe tomato. It's actually just a totally different fruit in terms of uh, in terms of the composition, the taste, and the and the various sugars that are included in it. So uh, it's it's the sort of thing a tomato is sort of thing you actually cannot you cannot go to a store and buy and get the same product as you can picking it and eating it right away. You, you guys probably don't know, but my, my academic training is actually in botany. So, you know, I could, I could nerd out on this stuff for a long time. <laughs> we'll have to have you back on to do the botany podcast. Well, I, I got to imagine there's some great blog posts that can go on unlimited, like the $52 potato, but it can kind of get into the investment realm somehow. <laughs> that's right. That's right. The, uh, it, it, it might have taken you a dozen hours for one potato. That's that's a, I, I, uh, I dig up my potato crop uh, at Thanksgiving, which is particularly good because you don't know exactly how productive it's been until uh, you, you dig it up and, and pour it out. And um, the great thing about doing that at Thanksgiving is that, you know, families there to see whether or not it's uh, succeeded or failed. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> are, are they the kind of it fails? <laughs> we got to run in the grocery store and fail. That's right. That's right. Buy some of those, those crappy potatoes. For the, uh, for I'm the a big potato fan, so I, I, I'm interested, like, if they're that much better, that's that's pretty cool. It's a, it's a totally different food. You'd be shocked at how how much better <laughs> potatoes are fresh out of the garden than they are out of the supermarket. You should uh, you can grow them in small pots. Uh, you know, you can buy pots for cloth pots for ten bucks and soil and and get seedling potatoes. Uh, you know, the seedling potatoes are twenty bucks, and the pot is ten bucks, and the soil's twenty yeah. bucks, and uh, you might get uh, three or four potatoes out of it. <laughs> Nice. But don't forget you have to water and care for the thing for months on end. Yeah, this does sound like the $52 potato. <laughs> uh, well, this has been great, Bob. We we like to ask all of our guests sort of a standard closing question. And and for the, the Show Us Your Portfolio episodes, it's, and I think, you know, you've, you, you've probably hit this and hit this many times throughout the discussion. But if you could impart one lesson to your average investor around your personal approach to investing, your simple investment game plan, what would that be? I think the main thing is just have the humility to recognize that you don't know what's going to happen in the future, whether it's what's going to happen to asset prices or whether it's going to be knowing when you need the money that you put away from from savings. And so while it can feel conservative and that you're missing out by not, you know, going extreme in one direction or another, um, if you're trying to ease the mind and build wealth, having humility to diversify is your ticket to long-term success. That's great, Bob. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. 
Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was great. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital.